For over 70 years, Oshner has been dedicated to cancer research and new cancer treatment development, bringing innovations to the fight against cancer, including more clinical trials than anywhere else in the region. I'm Dr. Jonathan Mizrahi with the Oshner Cancer Institute. One of the most common complaints I hear from my patients when I first meet them to discuss their cancer diagnosis and treatment plan is that there is a lack of reliable, available information about cancer. Evaluating what is or isn't a credible source of information on the internet is challenging, even for the most experienced of Googlers. We are seeking to fill that gap by providing the public with understandable, reliable information about cancer. Join me as we talk to healthcare experts at Oshner about what you need to know should you or a loved one receive a cancer diagnosis. Welcome to All In Against Cancer. According to the American Cancer Society, over 60,000 people in the United States will be diagnosed with leukemia this year. However, leukemia is a broad umbrella term for a number of different blood cancers, each with their own signs, symptoms, and treatment. In this episode of the All In Against Cancer podcast, we talk with Oshner hematologic oncologists, Dr. Carter Davis and Dr. Laura Finn to learn more about the diagnosis and classification of leukemia, what treatment options are available to patients, and how to reduce the risk for developing this malignancy. So welcome, Dr. Carter Davis and Dr. Laura Finn to the show. I really appreciate you guys coming on and and talking to us today. Thank you for having us. So let's start before we kind of get into the the nitty gritty here, um, a little bit in the way of introduction background on you two. So Carter, Dr. Davis, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got to be here in uh, New Orleans at Oshner? Thank you. Uh, Jonathan, I am uh, Carter Davis. I am a New Orleans native. Um, I'm the associate program director of our blood marrow transplant program at Auctioner, as well as our uh, fellowship program for hematology and oncology training the next generation of oncologists. I grew up here. I earned a medical degree at LSU in New Orleans, and then I did my post-medical uh, school training and residency and fellowship at Duke University before I came back here uh, and joined the Auctioner team. Awesome. And you went to high school with my wife, so that's right. that. <laughs> uh, uh, Dr. Finn, uh, what about you? So I am not a New Orleans native. I am from Tioga, Louisiana. There used to be an Air Force base in Alexandria, and that's how our parents met, was through the Air Force. So I have an Air Force brat, traveled all around. And they ended up here for medical school at LSU in New Orleans, did residency at Earl K. Long in Baton Rouge. Um, I joke that I closed down hospitals because neither Charity Hospital or or K. Long uh, still exist right now. (laughs) Um, Graduated the year of Hurricane Katrina, so got blew out actually for fellowship to Jacksonville, Florida at Mayo Clinic. And that's where I did most of my specialty training in leukemia. Um, Went to University of Minnesota to do extra stem cell transplant training and stayed on staff at Mayo Clinic for a few years. But Hart was always in New Orleans, uh, promised my partner we would come back after three years. So at six, it was time to come back to New Orleans and practice hematology and bone marrow transplant. So now I'm the director of bone marrow transplant here at Oshner and also of the hematology oncology fellowship program where Dr. Davis and I work together really closely. Awesome. And uh, one of your stops, Jacksonville, Florida, is close to my heart. That's where I grew up. So uh, I know you're a Jaguars fan, too, like me, right? On specific days. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's let's get into it. Carter, let me ask you first. Generally speaking, how do you define leukemia? What is leukemia? 
great question. So leukemia is a cancer of, of the blood, um, which is for a lot of people an unusual concept instead of thinking about a tumor in the body to think of cancer actually coming from your, your blood itself. Um, and more specifically, what it means is, is cancer of what are called white blood cells, um, which are what make up our immune system. Uh, and so in the case of leukemia, uh, the thing that's cancerous is actually our immune system. And that has a lot of implications for um, how it can present and, and what happens to people with this type of disease. Um, in many ways, what will show up for people is having too many white blood cells in their bloodstream. Um, and that might happen on uh, some kind of routine blood test. But they're not normal white blood cells. They don't function right. They don't actually help protect you. They're actually cancerous and they can be uh, harmful or even life-threatening for some people. And how do we categorize different types of leukemia? So there, this is a, another term that actually can mean many different things. So in the same way that when we talk about cancer, we actually are talking about many, many different diseases. With leukemia, we're talking about uh, many different types of, of cancers as well. Um, and so uh, the type of leukemia we're talking about actually is based on what part of the immune system becomes cancerous. So Broadly speaking, we kind of create two categories. There are uh, part of the immune system called the myeloid uh, cells and the part called the lymphoid cells. Um, and so we might call it a myeloid leukemia or a lymphoid leukemia. And then we usually also describe it by how aggressive it is when we discover it um, and how long people might have had it before they were diagnosed. So the more aggressive leukemias that typically uh, cause people to get sick uh, early um, are called acute leukemias. And the ones that people may have had for uh, sometimes months or even years before they were diagnosed and often will continue to live many uh, years with it uh, relatively symptom-free uh, are called chronic leukemias. And so we put all these different terms together. So you might hear about something called acute myeloid leukemia or chronic myeloid leukemia or by the same token, acute lymphoblastic leukemia or, or chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And so these are these are uh, among the most common types of leukemias we see. So AML, ALL, CML, CLL, these are abbreviations for these terms we use. Um, and these are, these are different categories uh, that we have. And it's really important to know which one a, a person has um, because they can all behave very differently. Yeah, again, well explained. I mean, mm -hmm. leukemia is the, the focus of this uh, mm -hmm. podcast, but there's a lot more yeah. <laughs> to leukemia. I mean, there's so many different types that leukemia is, is just really an umbrella term. Yeah. Okay, Dr. Finn, let me ask you this question. Uh, what, are, what are some risk factors for you developing leukemia? Great question. And it actually was my area of research focus when I started uh, practicing hematology is the epidemiology of leukemia. For the most part, it's a considered a spontaneous event that the risk factors are unknown or cannot be determined, especially when we talk through patients, through their medical history and their lifestyles and what may have put them at risk for this type of cancer. And it's probably the most common question we get is why did this happen? And for the most part, we often can't pinpoint a reason. There are a few identified and accepted risk factors for leukemia. The greatest environmental risk factor is actually a chemical called benzene. And we are all exposed to small amounts. It's actually used to make almost everything. The sole of your shoe, if it's made of rubber, has benzene in it. All plastics do. If you're in any type of fabricated construction, there's benzene and really small content in your environment. But that should not be enough to cause cancer. In epidemiology studies, it's in industry and factory workers who are exposed at extreme levels of this chemical. That's a known risk factor. 
It's um, been shown in studies of population health that people exposed to large volumes of like industrial strength pesticides, insecticides, and petroleum that is a risk factor for leukemia. And there are things that we do medically that put people patients at risk, and that includes therapies for other cancers. And that's an unfortunate defined risk factor for leukemia is getting chemotherapy or radiation therapy for any other reason, and most likely that reason would be another type of cancer. And that's a specific type of leukemia called secondary or therapy-related leukemia. There are some studies that have shown that with very eloquent genetic profiling, we're starting to have evidence emerge that we may be able to backtrack and at some point identify whether these risk factors um, occur not only by an environment, but in development. Um, We know that Down syndrome puts people at risk for pediatric forms of acute myeloid leukemia that risk dissipates with age. But knowing that Down syndrome is a genetic risk factor, we're now seeing very elegant studies that show certain genes and molecular mutations, which we're going to talk about later, that we see in leukemia, if we can have the right test, may actually even be evident in fetal development. Hmm. Interesting. So along a similar line, and maybe I'll ask this for you, Carter, is do we have any screening tests for leukemia? It's a great question. Screening is an important concept in cancer. Um, When we talk about screening, what we're trying to do is Uh, perform some kind of test to see if we can diagnose a disease early or even before it develops so that we can then intervene and stop it or treat it at an early stage before it becomes uh, a later stage disease that might have more dire implications. Um, So, for example, in, in colon cancer, when we do screening with a colonoscopy, we try to identify a polyp and remove it before it becomes cancerous. In leukemia, uh, we don't currently have any technology that can identify Uh, parts of the immune system that are at risk for becoming cancer that we can then uh, change. Um, So unfortunately, um, really most patients are going to be diagnosed uh, either with symptoms or during some kind of health evaluation. Um, And and so we don't have any uh, current screening tests for leukemia. Okay. And along those lines, um, you said most people are diagnosed when they have signs or symptoms. So what are the signs and symptoms? How, How are most people presenting when they're diagnosed? Leukemia can present in many ways, and it's important to note that some of the things that we'll talk about here uh, might apply to some people, but not all. And there may be some symptoms that we can't cover because uh, there can be any number of things that can happen. Um, with leukemia, uh, when when it's developing, it usually is creating a real um, toll on the body. So many people will have symptoms that are fairly nonspecific, like feeling ill, having malaise. Uh, fatigue. Um, As it advances, it may start to cause unexpected weight loss or uh, drenching night sweats. Um, The lymphoid uh, leukemias may cause lymph nodes to enlarge or the spleen to enlarge, um, which is an organ in the abdomen um, behind the stomach and usually can cause loss of appetite. Um, And because it's a cancer of the immune system, uh, some people will actually have their initial symptom be some kind of infections. They might show up to the hospital with pneumonia um, and in the course of being evaluated are discovered to have something wrong with their blood system and be diagnosed with leukemia. Um, so there are many possible symptoms um, uh, that can lead to a uh, diagnosis of leukemia. Um, importantly, uh, what we almost always see is some change in the number of blood cells in their circulation. So when they're having tests drawn, we see usually a very high white blood cell count. 
you know, a lot of these symptoms that you explained, I could probably replay other podcasts we've had and say they're kind of nonspecific. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, obviously, swollen lymph nodes can can be anything. It could be a routine infection, could be a cancer, could be a lymphoma. Um, you know, losing weight; these are all common symptoms. So, I think is it fair to say the bottom line is nonspecific symptoms, sometimes no symptoms at all. Right, and to reassure that the average person listening, um, this is uh, not a common cancer. So, although sixty thousand people in the United States will be diagnosed every year. Um, thankfully, that represents a, a relatively small number of people. Um, and so most of those symptoms that I described do not suggest that you have leukemia, um, but they are, are, are commonly associated with it. Correct. Well, well stated. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Finn, so how does one make the diagnosis definitively of leukemia if we see some of these abnormalities or we have the suspicion that that might be the underlying diagnosis? Like in other tumor types, when we suspect a cancer The goal is to take a piece of that organ that may be involved and evaluate it. So fortunately, we're hematologists and we're dealing with blood. So the initial test to evaluate for leukemia is usually blood work. So that is an IV draw of blood. Um, We take drops of it and put it on glass slides and ultimately do something very basic and look at it under a microscope. And we can tell by sizes and shapes and distortion of cells if something's not quite right, <laughs> put it in simple terms. Mm-hmm. Now, that is the cursory test, like the preliminary test that we're looking and performing for to test for leukemia. But the blood isn't the ultimate source of our immune system. It is actually our bone marrow. So most patients being evaluated for leukemia, I say with the exception of some patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, a bone marrow biopsy is required. That is the production center of the blood. That's the site of origin. And leukemia is, at its core, a cancer of the origin of the immune system. So we are also doing bone marrow biopsy. It's a it's often an in-clinic procedure that can be done with local sedation to take a small amount of blood from what most people would think of as their hip bone, but it's not quite exactly, it's not the hip joint, but an area around the hip joint to look at the blood that actually comes from the marrow space. Um, If anybody's um, eaten fried chicken and taken the drumstick and broken it in half, that hollow area you see in a a living animal and a creature is usually actually full of blood. And the living tissue of that area looks like a honeycomb. So when we're doing a bone marrow biopsy to create an analogy, we're trying to remove a little bit of the honey, and that's brand new blood being made, and a little bit of the comb, because that's the nest that is the nutrient center for your bone marrow. Both or either of those areas can actually be distorted in leukemia, and that's what we're looking for is that distortion as a sign of blood cancer. Now, that just gives us the overall impression that leukemia is present. What we actually require for further diagnosis is very elegant genetic testing and what we call molecular mutation testing that is done both on the blood and in the aspirate part of the bone marrow. You can say that's the honey part of the bone marrow if you go back to that analogy. Those genetic tests are very important for prognosis information. It often dictates how we will treat leukemia and what medicines we will prescribe. So this whole spectrum of tests need to be performed. That includes that blood test where we look at it under the microscope, bone marrow biopsy, and a spectrum of uh, genetic testing and we call molecular mutation testing. Now that may be taken a step further for patients of lymphoid-based leukemias that may need scans of the body to look for the things that Dr. Davis just mentioned, such as lymph node enlargement or spleen enlargement, because 
not all leukemias are staged, like you may think of other other tumor types like stage one or beyond breast or lung cancer. But we do stage in a very similar fashion some types of the lymphoid leukemia. So that may be an extra step depending on which leukemia you have. Great. So just to recap, we're at the point where someone's presented. They have the diagnosis now of their leukemia. And now we can kind of start to break it off into different types of leukemia. So because this is a, a complex disease with uh, multiple different subtypes, I'm going to break it up into acute and chronic. So let's start with acute leukemia. So uh, Dr. Davis, talk me through how you know we break down acute leukemias and uh, how we treat them, uh, what the prognosis is. Uh, talk to me just through the acute leukemias. Sure. So just as a reminder, acute leukemias are, tend to behave fairly aggressively. Um, and so they usually have developed over a short time interval from uh, when they, they started originating to when someone has symptoms. Usually that's measured in a period of, of months. Um, and so uh, one of the challenges with acute leukemias is the symptom development can also be rapid. So once someone starts feeling those symptoms, they may progress fairly quickly to being hospitalized, which is often where we find our patients with acute leukemia. Sort of, again, breaking down into the two types, we have acute myeloid leukemia, which uh, is the most common acute leukemia in adults in the United States. So there are a little over 20,000 cases a year. Um, and uh, this is um, sort of the opposite situation in children, which uh, more typically have acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or ALL. So our, our AML patients um, usually uh, present, like I said earlier, with, with often with nonspecific uh, illnesses um, and are usually hospitalized at the time of diagnosis. As Dr. Finn suggested, we, we perform the bone marrow biopsy to make the diagnosis, and then we do a lot of other testing too. We test um, to see what, what actually happened to the blood that made it turn into leukemia. We look for the mutations uh, in the DNA that caused this to become cancerous. And that used to be uh, informative. Um, nowadays, actually, it is predictive of how certain treatments may be effective. And we're getting more personalized with acute myeloid leukemia treatments so that um, we can be smarter about what to treat people with. Uh, broadly speaking, this is a potentially curable cancer, um, although it can be quite fatal and still has a very high mortality rate even with the new treatments that are available. Most patients are actually around the age of 70 when they're diagnosed, so many of them have other medical conditions that impact what kinds of treatments they're eligible for. Uh, usually for patients that we're trying to reach a point of cure, we need to do very aggressive chemotherapy in the hospital. And uh, some patients may be eligible for that. Some who are maybe more frail or older may not be uh, good candidates for that because it may have very high toxicity. Um, but actually nowadays our less aggressive treatments, which are usually done as an outpatient, people don't actually have to stay in the hospital, um, are, are quite effective and can get most patients into remission uh, or an undetectable state for their leukemia. Um, so the, the initial part of our AML evaluation after getting the bone marrow is looking at all of these mutations and assessing uh, prognosis. What is the risk of this leukemia to the patient? Um, that helps us select a good therapy in discussion with our patients about what the goals for the treatment can be. Um, and then hopefully we're able to get to a point where the leukemia is no longer detectable. We call that remission. And for patients that we're trying to cure, they may need additional treatments or sometimes even uh, a bone marrow transplant. Now, talking about the other type of acute leukemia, ALL, there are some similarities. Um, this is more common in children. Dr. Finn and I are uh, adult oncologists. We have colleagues in pediatric oncology uh, who 
uh, help us take care of, of the children. And um, there's actually a, a pretty significant number of, of people uh, who are in the adolescent or young adult age um, who get affected by ALL as well. Uh, and we often coordinate with our um, pediatric colleagues in the care of those patients. Uh, we feel very fortunate to be at Ochsner because we actually have a specific adolescent and young adult oncology program or AYA program um, that helps us take care of the, the young adults uh, with uh, ALL or even AML uh, for those that may have it at that age. You know, as you can see, um, acute leukemia is not a one-size-fits-all. Um, there is a uh, diving deep into the you know molecular abnormalities, the mutations that um, have contributed to these diseases. You know, I can remember from my my training, and I don't actively treat leukemia really anymore. But um, it was it's very complicated <laughs> to categorize into prognosis, but also picking out which therapies are, are right for which patient. It's not something that. Um, you know, can, can be done like that. You really have to dive deep into a patient's uh, personal um, uh, leukemia characteristics in order to decide the best treatment for them. It, it is. And, and I guess one thing that I really want to drive home is I think it's important to to have a, 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 a realistic, uh, hopeful but realistic discussion with the oncologist about um, what the goals of the specific care is for each patient. This really is always a personalized uh, a situation. It's it's almost impossible to, to generalize too much because everybody is, is very different. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Shifting away from the acute leukemias into uh, the chronic leukemia landscape. So uh, a similar um, outline for me, if you will, Dr. Finn, about the chronic leukemias. Absolutely. So we'll actually start with chronic myeloid leukemia or CML. And as Doves tell nicely from our conversation we're just having about personalized care of leukemia because it is the model of cancer that was the first to have personalized therapy that has evolved here over the past few decades. So CML is currently defined as that, that high white blood cell count we've been talking about, looking at blood under a microscope and the bone marrow and see an overpopulation of mature myeloid white blood cells, that mature part of the immune system. Historically, before 1970, we were treating CML with traditional chemotherapy, um, drugs that were called interferon and melphalan, and the prognosis for patients with CML was actually quite low, was quite poor. And it happened upon the discovery that CML, would, for the most part, majority of patients, is due to a very specific genetic mutation. And it's called the Philadelphia chromosome mutation because there was a big conference in Philadelphia in 1960, and this was all they discussed. This was a landmark event in hematology. Um, the, the translocation of 922 was discovered by Janet Rowley on her kitchen table, where she had taken photographs of all the human chromosomes from patients with CML and was shuffling them around until she found out that part of chromosome 9 had made it to chromosome 22 and vice versa. And she was able to identify the causative genetic mutation for CML. Why that's important is that subsequently that allowed drug development to occur to create a medicine that could specifically target CML and that one genetic mutation. So it is the first personalized cancer therapy. And how that changed patients' lives is it created a therapy for leukemia, a specific leukemia that had far less side effects than chemotherapy. And while lifespan may not completely be completely normal for patients CML, it became near normal with that therapy. And that medicine was imatinib, uh, also goes by the name of Gleevec. So that's the treatment for CML. It's a pill. 
Um, so it becomes a chronic medicine that someone can take. You don't have to be in the hospital anymore. You don't have to receive chemotherapy. You don't have to experience the side effects of chemotherapy that we just mentioned earlier can actually create another type of leukemia, like secondary acute leukemias. Now, where the field of CML therapy has gone is the attempt to continue to improve on that type of pill therapy for CML. In comparison, chronic lymphoid leukemia, CLL, it is taking a lot longer time to get closer to the point that we can treat it without chemotherapy. So CLL is one of our leukemias we're discussing that in large part does not need that bone marrow biopsy for diagnosis. It's detected by a high white blood cell count, a very characteristic appearance under the microscope of the blood, and actually most of the genetic testing that needs to be done can be done on a blood sample. And until very recently, meaning in the last few years, CLL, when treatment was needed, was treated with quite intense chemotherapy. And what we've seen is evolution in the treatment of CLL closer to that that we see in CML, meaning it's not directly targeted therapy for genetic mutations, but we're now seeing a move away from chemotherapy to some pills that you can take for CLL in combination with what we call immune therapies or antibodies towards leukemia. Fortunately, we're seeing um, more personalized medicine in our areas of chronic leukemia for treatment. Yeah, and that evolution that you explained in, in chronic leukemia has been remarkable, you know, for folks who have been practicing a lot longer than I have. But um, and, and I don't think you can graduate medical school these days without knowing the 922 uh, um, translocation of the Philadelphia chromosome. I think that shows up on every board exam. So now we can all go to med school. So let's talk a little bit about clinical trials. This is something that we, you know, advocate for certainly at Oshner, but but really in a lot of um, uh, high-volume centers across the country. And that's how can we improve with, upon the standard of care that we offer to patients. So um, l- let me start with the acute leukemias, going back to Dr. Davis here. Um, any any trials either that we're offering at Oshner or, or, you know, elsewhere that, you know, have caught your eye that maybe you want to you touch upon here in the acute leukemia space? Yes, um, there, there's a lot. And so just to point out that it's clinical trials that, that get these uh, new therapies that are less toxic and, and more effective um, uh, in, in how we get there. So we, we always try to consider clinical trials alongside um, potential standards of care uh, for our patients. And we're fortunate to have a, a really robust clinical trial portfolio at Ochsner in the leukemia space, especially. Um, at Ochsner, uh, most of our clinical trials in AML are focused um, in patients who maybe have been treated, perhaps went into remission, but then the leukemia is returned. Um, this is a huge area of need, is being able to treat patients that maybe have had a, a relapse or a return of their leukemia. Um, and so that's something that we, we actively are, are looking at with every patient. And we have some, some um, treatments that work by new mechanisms uh, that, that we're excited about and, and hope to be able to bring to as many people as possible. Um, in general, though, uh, what I would say is that um, AML actually is is starting to see the the same kind of uh, a change that we're seeing in chronic leukemias. Whereas for really almost fifty years, um, the same chemotherapy drugs were used over and over and over again, and mm-hmm. nothing improved on it. Um, all of the decades of science research are leading now to multiple targeted therapies in AML, such that since two thousand seventeen, um, we've had. Uh, many different drug approvals for AML. So it's, it's looking very promising, and, and we expect that that will continue. Um, and ALL, 
Um, even though there are very high cure rates in children, uh, there's a lot of work to be done in, in adults um, and even in certain populations of children that maybe have higher risk features. And so um, in cooperation with our um, uh, pediatric oncology colleagues, we have uh, a variety of clinical trials available trying to improve on some of those treatment outcomes um, in all age ranges from the young children to adolescent young adult population and even uh, in our older adults. And even borrowing some of the drugs from the, the CML space and moving right. them into the ALL space because of overlapping genetic mm-hmm. aberrations that have, that have come. That's a great point. Yeah, actually. So it turns out that that same Philadelphia chromosome can happen in ALL patients. And that used to be a very feared um, uh, change because it, it led to poor prognosis. Um, but actually by incorporating these treatments we have for CML, we've actually found it almost to be a relief now where, where more patients respond and we can use much less toxic approaches to treatment. Right. Okay, and what about Dr. Finn from the chronic leukemia space? Any any clinical trials here you want to talk about? Yeah, so I can actually highlight the research activity that's going on in the areas of CML and CLL because there are some exciting um, activity going on. In CML, the area for improvement is to make the medicines like imatinib and gleevec that target the chromosome 922, that Philadelphia chromosome, make those medicines better. What that means is we have effective therapy, but at certain doses, sometimes it's too toxic. And actually, drug resistance can sometimes develop over time that can deem some of the tablets, these these types of medicines we give, ineffective in CML. And the goal is ultimately to get a CML patient in the undetectable cancer state, meaning you can't even detect the genetic mutation. So new medicines are called tyrosine kinase inhibitors. New forms of these are being developed to bind that genetic site in different ways to improve on that remission status for patients. And those that actually develop the the drug resistance, there's a very specific mutation for that, developing new forms of this therapy that can even overcome that drug resistance. In addition, CML actually follows into two blood cancer categories. It's considered both a leukemia And what's also another category of blood cancer is called a myeloproliferative neoplasm. So clinical trials are actually adding medicines used in that other type of blood cancer in combination with these TKIs. So rexolitinib is a drug for myelofibrosis. But because CML and myelofibrosis are both considered myeloproliferative neoplasms, overproduction, bone marrow disorders, we're seeing combinations of these therapies that are improving the what we call deep remission states uh, for patients with CML. Now, on the other hand, CLL, where all the action is happening, is seeing how far away we can get from chemotherapy for CLL. I mean, we can focus on targeted therapies and immune therapies. So that's where most of the new new drug development has happened in CLL. So now all the clinical trials are in various combinations of these agents. In addition, there is new cellular therapy that is in development for CLL. So cellular therapy is using our own our own body's immune mechanisms to fight its own cancer, which may sound strange when we're saying we're going to use the immune system to fight the immune system um, because we're talking about leukemias, which is cancer of the immune system. And one way, this is bone marrow transplant that was mentioned for some of the acute forms of leukemia that is actually donating a new immune system to fight off an immune cancer you may have. In CLL, it's rare. On occasion, a bone marrow transplant may be recommended, but what we're seeing in development is new forms of cellular therapy. Some is called CAR-T, where a part of your your immune system called the T-cell 
can be redirected and retrained to fight the section of your immune system where the cancer is, which is the B cell. On the same line, we have bite therapy, and that's where a lot of the action in clinical trial and CLL is occurring. Um, bite therapy is bidirectional T-cell engager therapy. The best way to think of it is a magnet. Um, the magnet brings your T-cell to one side, your B-cell cancer to the other, get them to meet and greet each other, and it helps the T-cell then therefore recognize the B-cell cancer as something that shouldn't be there and therefore destroy it. So a lot of excitement with really novel therapy that is occurring in CLL. Sounds like this is really going to be the future as we move further away from chemo, particularly in the chronic leukemias. On a similar vein, um, you're kind of getting into it now, but any other developments that kind of excite you about where the future of leukemia and treatments are heading at this point? One thing that really excites me is um, how much better and more able we are to treat older patients. So um, with the exception of ALL, all of these uh, types of leukemia that we're talking about usually happen in people right in the sort of the end of their 60s or early 70s uh, for the most part is, is kind of the average age where, where people are diagnosed. So most patients, more than half, are going to be in the, the sort of older age range. Um, and um, as we've found that many people can live very well uh, for a long period of time through their 60s, 70s, and even 80s. Um, but a lot of those older chemotherapy drugs uh, don't work as well in uh, older patients, and they're also more toxic for older patients. Um, and so as we're acquiring new therapies, we're actually able to treat these patients um, uh, more often and, and uh, more effectively. An example in AML is actually um, using something called a hypomethylator therapy and then this newer oral drug called venetoclax, um, which in combination actually can get about two-thirds of patients into remission um, and can be tolerated very well even in older patients. My personal uh, oldest patients are around 92 years old at this point and is doing quite well. So, um, you know, even a few years ago, I wouldn't have been able to um, offer much to, to this individual. So um, it's, it's really exciting to be able to see us help more people and help them live well. Dr. Finn, anything you want to add there? I do. So I actually have one along the similar line of that thought is not only are there first-line drugs that can get older patients into remission with very little toxicity. But we, we do realize for acute leukemia, especially AML, uh, bone marrow transplant is only known at this time curative therapy. And there are ways bone marrow transplant has changed that also makes it more of an option for older patients. There is a way we can change the transplant to make it more tolerable. So less and less is age an issue. It's your overall health and how strong you are physically and in your general health. So transplant has moved in great strides towards uh, availability for larger patient populations. And on a flip side, one thing that's exciting, we alluded to the AYA program, is we're realizing pediatric medicine has made leaps and bounds in the cure rates for ALL. And we're finally realizing we can actually translate that into older and older adults. So in the realm of ALL, when we're talking about adolescent and young adults, we, sometimes we're talking all the way up to the age of 45, which depending on how, how old you are listening to this, that, that may feel very young. So that, that's justifying that's still young, um, that we're seeing the, the response rates and the remission rates, and hopefully eventually the cure rates start to match those of pediatrics. And that's a, a type of leukemia in children that sometimes has a 90% cure rate. And so we're moving the bar actually more in adults by following some of the pediatric literature and their treatment regimens. Great. Next for our occurring segment, what can I do to decrease my risk of developing leukemia? 
So, Dr. Davis, how, how would you tackle that question? This is a tough one, and I wish I could um, give you more proactive approaches to this. The, the biggest risk for something like AML uh, is getting older. So we can't change that part uh, of, of what's happening within us. Um, we know there are some environmental agents, and as Dr. Finn pointed out, benzene is, is the most uh, well-documented offender there. Um, another important point uh, is that for people who are cancer patients and cancer survivors, their therapies may have increased their risk for leukemia. So it's important to talk to their doctors about that, find out if they do have increased risk, or if you're recently diagnosed with cancer and considering treatment options is to ask about how this may impact risk for future cancers. Um, so those are some things that, that you can do. Uh, unfortunately, at this point in time in 2021, um, there are not a lot of lifestyle modifications or um, dietary or exercise factors that we can really modify that are known to uh, impact our risk of leukemia down the road. So it's important that you uh, have a relationship with a primary care doctor so that if you have a change in health, they know how to evaluate you and, and, can, and can look for that. Great. Yeah, I know that's a tough question, so handled it well. For our next recurring segment, how do we treat leukemia at Ashner? So, Dr. Finn, how are we approaching the treatment of patients with leukemia at Ashner? Absolutely. So we have both inpatient and outpatient services at Ashner for leukemia care. And I'd like to say, fortunately, with all the things we've learned over time about leukemia, even acute leukemia, it is rare that you'd have to go directly into the hospital unless you were diagnosed in a very sick state. So fortunately, most patients come to us through our outpatient clinic where we're able to have consultation time with a new patient. We have our, our laboratory portfolio that we can perform all the blood tests that you would need for a diagnosis of leukemia and both um, availability to perform your bone marrow biopsy either in clinic or specialty services depending on your needs. Our inpatient side is available if you happen to be diagnosed in extremis um, for transfer in to the inpatient side for stabilization and perform any needed test um, on inpatient. And that's also where, where chemotherapy done for acute leukemia often occurs on inpatient. And whereas on the outpatient side, we may be providing the immune therapy for CLL or actually give, handing you a prescription or providing electronic prescription to your pharmacy for therapy for CML. But we're available 24-7, actually, for discussions with your physicians about where you, how you would need to come to us for your leukemia care at Oshner. And talk me through who else is on the team in this leukemia team. Obviously, we have the doctors, but, you know, it takes a lot more than just a handful of doctors to treat patients with leukemia. So who else is, is part of the team that we have? It's a massive team. So it includes uh, clinic staff that uh, is well-versed in treating hematology patients. So this includes medical assistants, clinic nurses. We have mid-level providers. They'd be nurse practitioners and physician assistants. We have transplant coordinators if you end up on the path towards a bone marrow transplant. And we have six hematologists and bone marrow transplant physicians that practice together and the care of leukemia. Also don't want to discount the inpatient nurses, the infusion nurses, the chemotherapy pharmacist, um, an entire massive team that's involved in your direct care. And unbeknownst to most is there's an, an entire laboratory workforce of pathologists and lab techs and the, the technicians in the lab that have to perform the very specialized genetic tests that are behind the scenes. So it's um, actually a multi-departmental effort to diagnose and treat leukemia. Yeah, I think pathology plays a huge role in, 
in all malignancies, but particularly hematologic malignancies, they have spe- specific hematologic pathologists, right, who specialize in, in reading these tests and bone marrow biopsies, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, we have, you know, nutritionists. We have uh, social workers. Um, you know, the, the list is goes on and on. Yeah, we run the risk of, of leaving someone out. The more we include um, our psychology team is actually really important because it's obviously a really challenging time for many patients, and, and it is multidisciplinary. One of the things actually that I would point out to um, that makes Auctioner um, uh, a, a destination site for leukemia care is that we have specialty expertise in this area, that there are studies that show improved survival um, when patients are cared for at centers with expertise. And so um, we we have it's not just the doctors that are here, but it really is having this entire team to be able to provide support for the leukemia patient. Um, when people have very tenuous immune systems, they need a lot of, of care and they need people with experience. And, and we're fortunate to be able to have a lot of wonderful professionals here. I agree. Well stated. For our next recurring segment, what should I ask my oncologist at my first appointment? So let me ask you, Dr. Davis, what, you know, your patient comes in for their first appointment with, for you. What, what do you think your patient should be asking? Sure. I, well, you know, and, and as we talked about early on, it's important to know um, what you have. So, so a lot of people I meet, I try to find out what they've been told to that point. Uh, many people find out that they have leukemia, and that's about the extent of, of what they know. Um, so trying to help them understand, actually, there are many types, and here is your specific type of leukemia. That's number one. What I think through as a doctor uh, when I'm taking care of a cancer patient is, number one, knowing the diagnosis, so helping my patient know the diagnosis. The second step is actually helping them understand the risk, um, and that's sort of the word for, that I use is prognosis, but the, what, what patients really need to think of is, what is how risky is this cancer for me? How likely is it that it can be cured? And so those are questions that are that are good to ask. And then once we've had that discussion, we can start talking about treatments and what are the expectations of treatment. Um, is treatment curative? Can it get it into the remission? Uh, how successful is that? Does it happen in most patients, all patients, or, or very few? Um, and then uh, are there other options compared with what the first thing that you've recommended is? And then, of course, I think it's always important to ask if there are any clinical trials to consider alongside uh, what are considered standard options. Specifically, uh, for some of our leukemia patients, we will eventually have a conversation about either stem cell or bone marrow transplant. Those are two terms that mean close to the same thing. Um, and so um, in, in leukemia patients, it's it's also appropriate to ask about whether that may be something they need to think about. And um, that's worth another podcast itself. Um, but uh, oh, we'll uh, definitely, <laughs> definitely um, you know, Dr. Finn can come back with one of our colleagues and, and, and go through that process. But uh, it's definitely something that, that patients should be asking about early. And for our next recurring segment, fact or fiction. So let me ask you this statement, Dr. Finney, tell me that this is fact or fiction or maybe somewhere in between. Uh, surviving many years with a leukemia diagnosis is not possible. Fact or fiction? That is fiction. I would say 50 years ago, I would say that's fact for a majority of our leukemia types. But with the changes in therapy, the fact that in a lot of our forms of leukemia, we've strayed away from chemotherapy that made the made leukemia and its care very toxic, that most patients will live many years with any type of leukemia they're diagnosed with. So fiction. Dr. Davis, this one's for you. I was just diagnosed with leukemia, so I need treatment immediately. Fact or fiction? 
That one depends. Okay. <laughs> so um, gotcha. uh, some of the acute leukemias really can create a, a pretty uh, severe medical situation at the time of diagnosis. And, and some of those patients will need urgent treatment. Um, and so uh, they will almost always be in the hospital when that decision is made. Um, and so we, we, we always sort of think as of acute leukemias as a medical emergency until proven otherwise. Um, Chronic leukemias actually very seldom need urgent treatment. Um, sometimes uh, uh, patients may be able to delay treatment for a period of months, um, or in the case of CLL, some patients may not need treatment for years, or possibly depending on when they're diagnosed in their life and how aggressive it is, they may not ever need treatment for CLL, uh, which can be an unusual thing to think about if you have a diagnosis of cancer, um, but if the disease itself is not a threat, actually in some cases um, it's not uh, something that needs any kind of urgent treatment. So um, it's important to, again, understand what you have and the risk to you so that you can talk about when you need the treatment. Great. And uh, finally, Dr. Finn, if I need a stem cell transplant or a bone marrow transplant, I need it from a blood relative that I need to go search for now. Fact or fiction? Fiction with caveat. (laughs) (laughs) So if you have a type of leukemia that needs a stem cell or bone marrow transplant from a donor, because if you start Googling, you'll find out there is different types of stem and bone, stem cell and bone marrow transplants. And some blood cancers can receive their own stem cells. But for most of the conditions we're talking about today, you would need a transplant from someone else. They would need to donate their immune system to you. We have degrees of preference for that donor. And so the preference is for a blood relative. That's usually a first degree relative. That's a mom, dad, adult child, full brother or sister. We can also look at those first-degree relatives um, and the degree of genetic match they have for you. That being said, if we don't find a blood relative with an ideal match for the transplant we need to perform, or if you don't have a relative, there is international BOMA registries that you can actually receive a transplant from a stranger anywhere in the world whose genetics match yours. And that transplant can be as successful as those performed with a relative. That also being said is there is a need for bone marrow donors in these registries. Your likelihood of finding a donor in registry is highly dependent on your ethnicity. And there are certain ethnicities that have very few registry donors available for a possible transplant. So we do actually encourage anyone and everyone to consider being a a registry donor. It's a matter of Googling. If you're a Googler, be the match. And that brings you to the National Marrow Donor Program Registry. And to register, it's a matter of them sending you a kit to do a cheek swab and send it back. And if you're of a minority ethnicity, that can actually save someone's life. Thanks. And I think that's a good point to end on there is, uh, you know, we'll have a whole podcast about bone marrow stem cell transplantation, but uh, encouraging, you know, something that we can all grab an oar and do something to do our part is is at least registering to be a a potential uh, donor. So thank you for highlighting that. And uh, on that note, thank you both for uh, coming in and uh, chatting with me today. I think I learned a lot. I I don't treat leukemia every day. So uh, some of this was recapped. Some of this was news to me. Uh, but I'm I'm honored and, and proud to work with both of you, and I think you, you know, you do outstanding service for for our patients in the community here. And, and thanks for talking with us. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. So, if you or someone in your family has been diagnosed with leukemia, I hope this episode can give you some guidance on the diagnosis, 
evaluation, and treatment options available. The Ochsner Leukemia Team uses a team-based approach in the treatment of patients with the most state-of-the-art therapies to help patients not only survive, but thrive. We tailor our treatments to our individual patients and utilize the most up-to-date medical evidence to guide our recommendations. To schedule an appointment with a cancer specialist at Ochsner, go to my.ochsner.org. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. I'm Dr. Jonathan Mizrahi with the Ochsner Cancer Institute. I'll see you next time on the All In Against Cancer podcast.